0: Oh, now, look at you. You're ready, aren't you? I don't know if I'm ready, but you look ready for this. It's episode 56, and we're doing it. We're just going to see where it goes. I don't know. I'm actually not sure why all of these episodes are around 30 minutes. I never aim for that. I'm not a robot. I don't program a 30-minute podcast. Maybe that's all I have in the tank. But tonight, I feel like I have even less in the tank. So we'll see. I'm going to try to push it. I'm going to try to push it to the limit. I'm going to try to seize the day, carpe diem. I'm going to try to make this one the best. How many motivational quotes do you read that are intended to make you appreciate this day and feel blessed for the moments you get? Seriously, how many mantras are out there? How many inspiring quotes tell you, no bad days, make this one great. You know why there are so many quotes with that theme? It's because we all know it's impossible. Nobody makes every day great. Nobody even remembers to try to make every day great. When we do have a great day, it's a great day because it's unlike other days. If every day was a great day and you truly succeeded in making every day the most amazing day and you truly realized that our days are limited... I'm not sure you would even understand the idea of what a great day is. A great day has to be something extraordinary. How many great days do you have a month? Ask yourself that question right now. And if you say every day, then I'm not talking to you. Then you're the outlier. How many great days do you have per month? I'm not saying good. Good, good enough. Adequate. We all have adequate days and we all have shitty days. But great, great is rare. I'd say five, five great days a month. And that doesn't mean I need more mantras and quotes and inspiration and motivation and people on social media quoting anybody from Martin Luther King to Gandhi. And I actually like motivational quotes. I really do. I think there's a place for them. They're reminders. That's really what they are. They're reminders, but they also remind you what's impossible. See, death should be way more of a motivating factor than it is. Death should be something that really does cause us to seize the day. To make every day the best one. To make every moment so special and sacred. But we're not wired that way. We're not. Most days are just days. Get your meals in. Get through it. Don't screw everything up. Keep your health. Keep your relationships intact. Keep your job. Sprinkle a little sugar on the end of the day. Whatever that is for you. When you get home and you hit that couch. Oh, 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 oh. When you get the sweats on, oh my God. You know that feeling? It's almost like you could feel steam come off of your head. Ah, the final couch moment. And if you're not getting those couch moments, if you're truly grinding to the point where it's everything, everything, everything's happening, and then bed, and you're not getting that decompression time, then you're probably reaching a level of stress that's going to kill you. So here's a motivating quote. Reduce the stress. Do anything you can to reduce the stress. I wonder, could there be a good kind of stress? Could there be like motivational stress? I think so. I think so. There are times when I go to sleep and I know I have so many thoughts in my head that I have no chance of falling asleep. And instead of getting upset or frustrated, I just embrace it. I say, all right, let's go through the thoughts. Let's go through it. I don't use my tools of focus on your breath and relax. Instead, sometimes I just dive right into the neurotic pool of ideas running rampantly through my brain you can't always resist. Could you imagine if every guided meditation I listened to, I actually remembered and used those tools every day? Of course I don't. That's why it has to be a practice. I think that's part of the idea of mindfulness is that you're going to screw up every day and it's okay, but not to condemn yourself. All right, back to the point. Death should be way more of a motivating factor than it is. Meaning most people should take a moment to reflect, zoom out, try to categorize what's truly important. Is this thing that's bothering me actually going to matter? Or is it consuming me for no good reason? We're just floating through, folks. We're just floating through. We should be able to navigate through our feelings with a little more ease. But we don't. Most people sweat the small stuff. They say, don't sweat the small stuff. That's another saying. Why does that saying even exist? Because people sweat the small stuff. But here's a question. Would you choose immortality if you could? So knowing that there's an expiration date on this thing called life, knowing we're all headed towards that. This is not intended to be morbid. This is intended to make you think. Actually, it's something I just thought about. So most people would not choose immortality. Most people do fear death. But if you could alleviate that fear and just check the box, yeah, I'll be immortal. How about that? First of all, pick which age you would stay. Are you going to be immortal from your 80s on? You want to be immortal at the end? Because you can't say, I want to be immortal, but in the state of a 30-year-old. You can't. Because you'd be wondering. You wouldn't check that box. Immortality, but paused at 30. So immortality probably looks like an elderly person who says, I want to live forever, because they're fearing death. If that's something that even happens. I have a theory that we progressively fear death less. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. But you hit a peak When you fear death the most and then acceptance, you just ride the wave of acceptance. You're like, I I can't fight this, but because most people do fear it, it's interesting that most people would also not want immortality because that would remove the curiosity to know what else, what else is going on out there? Could there be an afterlife? Could there be any reincarnation? Can my spirit live on in a different sphere? All those questions, they would never be answered. What percentage of humans on this planet right now would check the box? If that was an option, immortality. And one of the main reasons you probably wouldn't is because most of your friends and family aren't checking that box. So you're just going to outlive them all. You could try to make new friendships forever. Oh, that now sounds like torture. Immortality sounds like torture. Not to say death is a gift we all get, but come on. I don't even know what but come on means right there as if I'm influencing you to think a certain way. But come on, come on, think this way. I'm going to find a point. I'm just going to extemporaneously talk until the point comes to me. All right, there it is. Just came to me. Don't fear death. No reason to fear it. I mean, you could fear an early death. You could fear a health ailment. You can't even, actually. That'll ruin your current day. If you start worrying that you're going to have a health ailment, that you're going to have a disease, that'll ruin your current moment. All right, let me just step away from this heavy-ass topic. How'd I get here? I don't know. But, oh, yes, sexism. All right? Sexism. That's really the only bullet point I wrote down. But I know why. It's alive and well in my marriage. Uh Uh-huh. It is. It certainly is. It's not between us, though. It's not between us. I get to see sexism on display. Right in my face. A lot of the time. Because my wife typically does more of the handyman, even the word handyman, it's a male, handywoman, craftsmanship, home maintenance, things that you would go to a hardware store for. Just naturally, that has fallen onto my wife. Sure, I should be more helpful. I get that. Of course, I should, I could, I would, I want to. But the other day, we were doing errands. You know, just stopping at stores here and there, getting things done. And one of the stops she was driving was Ace. Ace is the place for, you know Ace, Hardware Garden Supply Store. And I said, I'll grab the baby, you grab the bag, you know that conversation you have. You grab this, I grab this. You get the bags, I get this. You get the baby, I get this. You get the stroller, I get the baby. You get the this, I get the wallet. You got the sunglasses? Okay, good. You got the cell phone, you got the wallet, I got the baby. Who has the baby? You got the stroller, you got the diaper bag. Okay, you got the bag, you got the bag. Okay, you got the baby. Yeah, it's the conversation that we're just going to have. And we're pretty good at it. And for this one, I said, I got the baby. And I went first into ACE. I went first into ACE with the baby in the stroller. And a guy walked right up to me, one of their employees, and said, hey, what can I help you with? And I didn't even know why we were there. I knew my wife had the list. I know it was her goal to buy a few things for the house or the garden. And I actually didn't know. I was just aimlessly walking through. And I said that to the guy. I said, actually, my wife knows why we're here. I hate to be that guy. I didn't have a better answer. I said, I don't even know. She has a list. She has a goal in mind. I'm just strolling a baby through. I'm a wanderer. And he laughed at me in a way that was beyond antagonistic. It wasn't like a, you just made me laugh comedy laugh. It was like a, (laughs) you're beneath all other men on planet Earth. It was the most condescending kind of laugh. It was such a, chuckle (laughs) okay all right buddy he was the type of employee who assumes that if a man and a woman walk in the store that the man has the list the man understands why they're in the store this also happens let's say oh yeah a plumber comes to the house and they start talking to me you know even if it's both of us standing with the plumber they just start talking to me and that's when i start to look like my beagle like i don't even understand the words you're saying Pipes and roots, sewer lateral, ordinances, just saying a lot of things about screws and clay, metals. I go, okay, huh? And then I just kind of look at my wife and go, could you take over? I wish I wasn't this way. But then it's always a weird moment for not just the plumber, but any male handyman. Could it be a carpenter? Could it be the rug guy's? Could be an electrician. When they come, they just start talking to me. They just assume. They stereotype. Oh, here's the guy of the house. He's going to understand when I talk about this. Yeah, so I probably get a 5.8, maybe a 5.2 around there. Maybe cock it up through and yeah, wrap it around the backside. I go, nope, didn't understand anything. And my wife comes in and she understands things. Why? This is how we were raised. My wife's dad, he was a handyman. He was crafty. He knew how to fix things. My dad has never fixed anything are you kidding me i don't have any memories of my dad picking up a tool looking under the hood of a car no memories of that the memory i have would just be like how to look through the yellow pages to find the person to come to the house to fix things so i ain't fixing shit my wife fixes things and if she can't the people that come to the house for like the real problems they assume i'll know they just start talking to me there's the sexism I see it all the time, even our neighbor. I think our neighbor, Vince, this guy's, you know, about 70 years old. He's a legend of the neighborhood. He's just always outside. He sweeps the street. He brings in people's garbages. He blows people's leaves. He's just like the ambassador of our street. Everyone knows him. And there are times when he talks to me about plumbing issues. And once again, I don't ever know what he's saying. It sounds like Japanese to me. But I know deep down, he has to know if he wants to have these conversations. My wife is better at them. She's just good at it. She understands. She has a toolbox. I'll just say it. She has a toolbox. Whereas I am the toolbox, she actually has a toolbox and knows the tools in the box. She can identify all of them. After hammer and wrench, I'm lost. Didn't choose to be this way. I suppose I could have a growth mindset and learn. I could learn more. I could probably learn YouTube videos. I could learn. Even assembling furniture, though. I take her lead. She understands how to read instructions, but also has a feel for it, like a natural feel for it. I don't have a natural feel for it. Chair from Ikea, that would take me five to six months. For her, five to six minutes. This is emasculating, correct? Or, or, we got to change our vision of these gender roles. I'm telling you, I see it. Sexism right in my face every day. The guy at Ace laughed at me. Laughed at me. And maybe I should have known why we were there. Maybe. Like right now, if our drain backed up, I would immediately just grab my phone and try to call someone. And she would have about three things first that she would try before calling someone. You name it. Anything about home improvement. Immediately. I would just try to call someone. A specialist. An expert. Hey, when can you come? Oh, our washing machine broke? Okay, I got to call someone. Oh, our dishwasher broke? Okay, I got to call someone. My wife? No. She has a few things she'll try. Oh, did you check this? Did you check that? Did you check this? No, I didn't check any of it. I just pressed on. And when it stopped working, I figured it was broken. Totally broken. Goodbye, old school gender roles. Goodbye. Farewell. Almost extinct. At least in this house. Something happened at Safeway yesterday. I got to bring this up. We were getting some groceries. I was buying a bottle of wine. And... The checker at Safeway didn't ID me, but she just says, Date of birth? I said, 9 And then the bagger goes, That was a Tuesday. I looked to my right, and this guy, just with a straight face, had calculated it, or whatever happened in his brain was able to tell me I was born on a Tuesday. I've never known that. And the cashier, the checker, just kind of looked at me and nodded, like, Yup, that just happened. And then I said, Whoa, how'd you know that? I like gave him a real reaction. Like I was a really interested person in this moment. I wasn't just like going to fake my interest. I was like, how'd that happen? How did you just do that? And then I looked at my wife and I said, all right, her birthday, June 3rd, 1983. He goes Friday. I'm not kidding right now. That's how fast he said it. So once again, cashier asks for my date of birth. We're buying a bottle of wine. I said 9, 15, 81. That was a Tuesday. Tuesday. That's how fast he said it. I go, what? Hmm? Huh? You just see my head jerk to the right. What? Who are you? What? What happened? And then after he told me, I'm a calendar guy. I'm a calendar guy. I said, what does that even mean? You're a calendar guy? I said, yeah. So that's when I dropped my wife's birthday. And then of course we Googled this later and he was right. She was born on a Friday. I was born on a Tuesday, but there was no time for him to even think about it. He just had the answers ready. So, of course, we researched this a tiny bit. And when I say research, I just mean Google, 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 tell me more. So here's what I found. There are actual people who are calendar-calculating savants with autism. Yet, nobody really knows how they do it. Their answers are too quick. So when they do tests against other people, other people have to calculate things. They have to actually use algorithms. But these calendar-calculating savants they don't use any calculating method that researchers are able to understand. And when they're asked, how can you do that? They don't even know. It's just there. They understand dates. Total mystery. What we read says, if the savants, if they were relying on memory for these astonishing calendrical feats, you'd think a memory test would reveal that they have unusual memory ability. Yet standard psychometric comparisons of memory performance between the savant and other people just doing this calendar calculation found no differences. So it's not like they're amazing at math. It's not like they have amazing memories with other things. But there's an actual group of people known as calendar calculating savants with autism. And that's what this guy was. This bagger at Safeway. I could have spent another two hours with him. Isn't that kind of Amazing sometimes when you have all these scientists and all these mathematicians and they come away just going, I don't know, like stumped. A lot of the time they have conclusions and their research brings them answers. But sometimes in science and medicine, mathematicians, they just go, I don't know. I don't know what happened in his brain, but he could tell you my birthday, February 4th, 1978, on oh, Thursday. You just go, what? Didn't you need to do something? It's just in his head. It's there. It's in his head. The article we saw says not all of these savants are the same. They all have different methods. I don't know how they know that, but the conclusions are supported by the fact that they answer so quick. That is just rote memory that these are people that have looked at the calendars and it just stays in the brain. I don't know. Why am I even trying to explain it? It doesn't make sense. It was just a cool little story. All right. Speaking of a story, Let me get into the big news from last week, at least in the world of radio, sports radio in San Diego, a big old station, the mighty 1090, uh, went off the air, pulled the plug done radio silence, 1090 AM. And when I say a big old station, I'm talking about big wattage, 50,000 Watts, big signal, big stick from Tijuana to Alaska. Honestly, I think there were people in Alaska who were listening to the shows. So had a big old blowtorch of a signal. And when I started there in 2004, huge staff. That all changed. So this is a glorious 16-year run. I did two stints with the Mighty 1090. The second one, pretty forgettable. But the first one, just in my eyes, very significant. Like a monumental breakthrough in my life from college to the professional world. And it couldn't have been any cooler. It couldn't have been any better. I just loved it. At San Diego State, if you're a broadcast journalism major, they place you in an internship. And I truly didn't know where I was going. It was just like anything, any TV station, any newspaper, just any radio station, just let me intern, let me get an A in this class. You know, actually treating it like just, all right, put me in an internship for all the wrong reasons. An internship, you're supposed to approach it and say this could turn into something. I'm actually going to observe how this career looks. Instead, I think I was in the mindset of just like, just place me anywhere. But one of my friends, I remember this in my class. He's now doing Lakers talk in LA. His name's Alan Slewa. He said, there's a new sports radio station that opened. I think I could get you in as a promotions intern. Has nothing to do with journalism, nothing to do with programming, nothing to do with broadcasting or sports radio. Just hang some banner tape. I've told this story, but this is how I got in the building. And then here's the best advice. If you ever just get in the building, create your own internship. Forget the schedule they give you. Just come early. Stay late. Come when you're not supposed to be there. Just be seen. Network. And don't be annoying. Just observe. Just see how it's done. Don't kick in the door and say, hey, everybody, look at me. I'd like to learn from you. Don't even say that. Don't even tell them why you're there. Let the action come to you. That's, that's my only advice with an internship. Don't be the person who comes in and says, I'm ready to take over and learn. I'm going to be the best. Hey, everybody, look at me. No, 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 no. Just be an outside observer and slowly they'll notice you. And slowly somebody will bring you in. Patience, young bucks, patience. Well, from day one, they did take me in. They let me hand out keychains. And I pretended for my journalism class that, yeah, I'm interning. Yeah, I'm learning radio. I wasn't learning radio. I was just meeting good people and seeing how radio worked. That's all I was doing. Radio's weird. Either you can do it or you can't. I'd love to say you could major in radio, but no. Can you talk? Can you organize a show? Can you interview? Can you keep people's interest? Yeah? All right. Maybe there's some potential. Can you string together a sentence? It's not rocket science. And I remember the day the internship eventually did turn into a full-time job. I was planning to leave San Diego, planning to send my demo tape with my news updates and news reports from 1090 and KCR. I was doing campus radio. Just send them to any U.S. city that would take me in. I'd do any type of radio. Christian gospel, whatever you need. Country, whatever you need. Fine. The idea of staying at the Mighty 1090 it didn't even sound like a possibility because when I first got there, I mean, there were big names At the Mighty 1090, at first, it seemed like they had 20 sports anchors, you know, 30 producers, endless hosts. Every weekend slot was filled. It just seemed so overstaffed. It was a big station and one signal. It was just 1090 a.m., led by John Lynch, John Lynch Sr. Most people know his son, the great safety from the Buccaneers and Broncos, but his dad is, you know, this big time radio tycoon, almost like a George Steinbrenner type. Like, just people were kind of fearful of him. Big presence, gigantic guy, impulsive wealthy, running the show. And he organizes the whole staff. He takes everybody from the old Extra Sports 690 days, or not everybody, but a good amount of them, and just transitions them into this new Padres station as Petco Park is opening. Perfect confluence of things happening in my life. Graduating college, there's a big radio station, there's a new ballpark downtown. You know, San Diego's not like an incredible sports city, but when a new ballpark is opening in the gas lamp, it created a buzz. So I got on right when there was a buzz. And at that time, I remember one of the executive producers there, Joe Titino, he called me and said, Hey, you do an update. You can run the board, learn to run the board. We'll pay you in Pringles. How does that sound? I think that's how little they paid me at first, but at least it was a job. And to me, that was it. That was it. I had hit the dream job at that point because the building was so fun to be in. It was so vibrant. There were so many good people when I first started. And I mean, behind the scenes. A lot of people knew the hosts, you know, Scott and BR. Steve Mason was there with Philly Billy before Darren. Brian Wilson, Mike Costa at night, or Coach, Ted Leitner. Just tons of good people. Board Ops producers, Killer Kellison, Brian Kellison, Herm Gassaway, Tom Howell. A lot of great producers. Marty Caswell, everybody knows her. Clubber was there. Who else was producing shows? I don't know. Brian Wilson seemed to just be there 24 hours a day, producing, sometimes hosting. Definition of utility. In promotions, Rich Bachman and Daryl Sykes. Just going to name a bunch of names. Either you know these names or you don't know these names. But in imaging, Frank Anthony, who is the Petco Park PA voice. Now batting, second baseman, Mark Loretta. Just the perfect voice doing all the commercials. One of the greatest guys I've ever met. Frank Anthony, like a radio legend down there. Every morning, just have coffee with him. Tell a joke. Most of these people were approachable. That was the weird part. On the outside, the booming signal, I guess locally there was celebrity status, but when you got in the building, it was just normal folks or actually weird folks, but I liked weird. I am weird. So I connect with that and people screaming, you know, there's always like an eruption of laughter. It seems in their sports pits, sports pits, you know, just ball games are on people debating about sports, yelling at each other, threatening each other fights, good fights, people answering phones for giveaways or guests, producers running around with their heads on fire, mini discs being edited sound being cut up play-by-play from all around the world all around the country all around radio stations going at all times so it felt like a stimulating environment i was addicted i said i need this i need to be in here i need to live it learn it love it and luckily there were some people that liked me i mean some higher ups bill Pugh, dan patrick's brother developed a nice relationship with him and they took me on and you rise up the ladder because radio is a world where people get fired or take other jobs it's volatile Radio's not really a long-term profession, I don't think. For a very select few, maybe. But radio's like a mechanical bull at a Tijuana bar. Radio is a rodeo. How about that? Make a t-shirt. Radio is rodeo. Stay on as long as you can. Stay on that bull. Stay on that bucking bronco, that bucking bull, as long as you can. That's radio. And I stayed on because I loved those people. Developed really close friendships. Radio, maybe there's a lot of professions like this, but you do develop a lot of close ties. It's always sad when someone leaves, or perhaps not sad for the person that gets to fill that spot. But last week, they pulled the plug. I guess they weren't paying the bills. I don't really know the story. I'm in touch with a few of the guys, but the staff dwindled to the point where I only knew I'd say four or five. But when I first started, it seemed like there were 50 people there just doing updates. Alan Horton was doing updates. He's now the voice of the T-Wolves. remember Mike Jackson, just this guy who looked like he was always bench pressing before his shift. He didn't look like it. He was. Johnny McGregor, Jack Cronin, John Fricky was there. Darren got to take over for Steve Mason when he went to LA and Darren proved to be a phenomenal host with Billy. And then after just solo, good dude. That felt like 1090. That felt like something special. That's what I feel connected to. Not my second stint. When I went back for my second stint, eh, it's okay. Still a lot of good people, but it was a different building. I liked when they were the high-rise on Nobel, overlooking that Mormon temple. There was a gym on the first floor. I don't know why I had to bring that up, but it was good. Stay in shape. Then they moved, and it was like Wayne's World. Okay, I have no clue what that means. Then I got bounced. Then I came to San Francisco. Then I became a teacher. Then I met a wife. Then I had a baby. Hey, push fast forward on that story. You're losing our interest. All right. But basically, just want to say, seeing the mighty 1090 go out of business, it's like a piece of my heart. Take another little piece of my heart. (laughs) Take another little piece of my soul. To be that wide-eyed and young in a profession, you don't always realize that'll be the glory days. Even right now, I've said this before, but my current teaching career. Gives me a lot of joy, knowing I'm still young. Got hired with a lot of other young teachers. I wonder if I'm currently in the midst of the glory days. Like later in life, I'll look back on this and go, well, those were the glory days. Now I'm a bitter old vet with coffee breath and a monotone voice like Ben Stein, Bueller. Remember Win Ben Stein's Money? That was a good show. Jimmy Kimmel. One of the contestants on Win Ben Stein's Money was my SAT tutor because I didn't do math. I'd like to say I was bad at math, but I just didn't do it. Like my brain wasn't even close to grasping SAT math. It's amazing. My score was high enough to get me into colleges, but I had the verbal folks. I had the English. Is this what you want to hear right now? Should we go down memory lane of test scores? But yeah, my tutor was on win Benstein's money. That's true. And Ben Stein and Ferris Bueller, sorry, sometimes I don't even know how I get to a certain place talking about SAT scores, but yeah. I'll be an old teacher one day, but right now it's the glory days. I never really became an old, bitter radio host, but I still remember looking back at 04, 05, climbing up the ladder and just being so wide-eyed and excited to be in the building, happy to get anybody coffee when I was interning. They always say, don't get people coffee. Bullshit. Do some of that work. Do some of that bitch work. Park someone's car. I remember they sent me into the studio in my first month there to get Ted Leitner's dinner order. I was so scared. He said, "Uh, who are you? I said, I'm Josh Rosenberg. I'm new here. I'm from San Diego State. He said, Island's Blue Nami Burger and a Diet Coke. I said, perfect. Gave me cash right there. I think he gave me enough cash. I feel like he gave me enough cash to get something for myself, but I didn't. And I liked Ted. Plus, I became the person where if all of the hosts or any update or producer was going out of town, they just give their shift to me. I'll take it. Yes. Happily. Every radio station needs that guy. Just who says yes to everybody's shift. Single guy. No wife. No kids. One beagle. Happy to work on Christmas. Are you kidding me? Happy to. Plus, there's always good NFL on Christmas. And of course, I evolved into the guy who demands more money. We all need more money. And then if you're not receiving money, you feel undervalued and all of a sudden the experience is tarnished and ruined. You get bitter and you want to go, you want to go, I don't make enough money. How many Americans have loved jobs, but the wage was so low they had to go. That's sad, isn't it? Isn't that sad? I guess that's why most people leave their jobs. I wonder how many people they'll look back and say their favorite job was one that paid them like shit. Otherwise, if they didn't, you would have lifelong jobs. They always say my generation, it's not like the Older generation that would have a job for the rest of their lives and get that gold watch heading into retirement that my generation has job after job, profession after profession, career after career. Yeah, I guess so. But isn't that a sign that you're just searching for a better wage? Maybe more fulfillment. I get that. But most people who leave a job by their own volition, is to make more money, not because they dislike the job. That's why I left the mighty 1090. They offered me $2.6 million to go to Extra Sports 1360. What's that? Huh? Sorry, I got a fact checker on this podcast. I just hired this kid. How's that? What's that? No, no, no. Let's not reveal what they actually paid people. $2.6 million to come to Extra Sports 1360. And at that point, I bought the estate in La Jolla and lived high on the hog don't let facts get in the way of a good story. Gotta love that. Now that's a good quote. Don't let facts get in the way of a good story. However, good stories have to actually be true. Anybody who's been telling a story with too many exaggerations or embellishments, you know deep down you're just some deceptive lying son of a bitch. You get the same reaction. That's how I feel about a lot of stand-up comedians. When they're telling their stories on stage, you go, eh, probably not. It's funny, though. Nick Swartzen has the best bit. Nick Swartzen, the Minnesota comic who everybody knows, or maybe people don't know him, the roller skater from Reno 911. He said, have you ever been mid-story, mid-story, and you realize that it was a boring story and you had to embellish towards the end? And he does the whole bit of, yeah, we were at the bar the other day, and Zach comes up to us, and he's like, hey, guys, and um, And then he stabs someone. He stabs somebody? Yeah, 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 he stabs somebody just had to add that to get their attention should probably lay low for a little while all right that'll do it episode 56 bunch of directions i got a little tired towards the end that's okay i love you very much why don't you leave a rating on itunes if you like give me a follow on twitter i'll follow you back at jrosenberg rosenberg 957 the cinco de mayo edition didn't even get into cinco de mayo could have done 40 minutes on cinco de mayo I mean, that's really, that's really what I'm passionate about. But instead, I talked about, let's see here, death, sexism, calendar calculators, and the mighty 1090. Sean Burroughs with a game-winning RBI single. Now back to Ted and Jerry at Petco Park. Hey, put it on tape. Send it out. All right. Thanks for tuning in. It's episode 56 in the books. I'll talk to you soon.